today's episode, we interview innovation expert and speaker, Stephen Shapiro. Stephen cultivates innovation by showing leaders and their teams how to approach, tackle, and solve their business challenges. Applying the knowledge he has accrued over decades in the industry, Stephen is able to see what others can't, opportunities to improve innovation models and the cultures that support them. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining this episode of The Leadership Habit. Today, we are going to be talking to Stephen Shapiro, who is an innovation expert, author, and keynote speaker. So today, Stephen is here to share with us how we can be successful in our innovation efforts. This comes down to both our mindset and how we look at innovation, and also what we can do in our organization to help create an innovative culture. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Jen. Good. You traveled all the way from Orlando, and you're here with us in Denver, Colorado. Um, We are huge fans of your work. We have read a few of your books, and you have a new book that's coming out. And I just wanted, you know, our listeners to get to know a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. So I've spent my pretty much my entire business life focused on innovation. Uh, Slightly earlier in my career, I was focused on optimization. So I'm an engineer by background. And one of the things that I was focused on was how do we optimize businesses? How do we make them more efficient? And one of the things that I realized is that you optimize a company, you're going to downsize the people. And I woke up one day and realized I was personally responsible for like tens of thousands of people losing their jobs. And I'm like, this this is not what I want to do with my life. So I started focusing on innovation a little more than 20 years ago, and that's all I've been doing since then. And what excites you about the topic of innovation? So I like it from a number of different perspectives. One is I like the intellectual aspect of innovation because it is a really cool thought process. It's fun. It's enjoyable. But I also like the the outcome of innovation because the outcome of innovation is uh, obviously a company being more successful. But for me, the the goal has always been job creation. I think if we're going to create a a powerful society, we want people to have jobs they love. And the more companies are successful, the more companies are growing, the more people they can hire. So that's been really my main driver. Oh my gosh, and how exciting to look at innovation through that lens of what can we create not only from a product perspective, but that people side. How can we create jobs for people to be able to go out and maybe create new products or do their services and acts in their communities and support a global culture? That's very exciting. Yeah, and it's what's, what's really nice too is because it has moved beyond just product, uh, everybody can be involved in innovation. And I've worked with finance organizations on helping them be more innovative, which you think finance shouldn't be innovative, but actually they should definitely because there's different ways that we can do our work. Uh, It's about experiences. How do we create a better experience for our customers? That's all innovation. Innovation is anything that makes a company better. Right, and I think that's a good point to clarify because I know that for me, not having a ton of familiarity around the topic of innovation I think I always just looked at it as something that was reserved for someone that was exclusively in product development. You never look at it as something that can be applied to your organizational structure or some of your processes. I think you do think of innovation in that way, but it's not necessarily held in that same regard as what they think of the people in organizations that are more disruptive. So whether that's innovation in terms of a car like Tesla and how that has shaped the way that we look at vehicles and low emission vehicles, but you know, for me, it's it's great to hear you say that innovation is really just not something that's reserved to someone in a product development area or in their research development area. It's accessible and should be practiced by everyone. Well, absolutely. I think we are seeing a democratization of innovation. So the past in the past, innovation was sort of the privileged few who are wearing long white robes and they were handing down the tablets from the mountain to the organization to say, here you go, implement. And the reality now is we want everybody to be innovating every day if possible. Now, it might be small incremental improvements to the way that they're doing their work. Uh, It might be bigger business model changes, but we want to be able to get better at collaborating across an entire organization because when we can deal with the collective wisdom of the organization, we get the best results. So where does the innovation process start? You know, does it start with the problem? Does it start with the vision? Where would you say the innovation process starts? If you're someone that's looking at Maybe I want to do things differently. So when you look at it at a macro level, I would say it starts with getting clear on, use the word vision. I would say getting clear on your differentiator. 
Because I think it's really important for organizations to understand why people do business with you and not someone else. And if you can get clear on that, then it allows you to focus your energies. I always say innovate where you differentiate. Uh, the biggest problem that I see is most companies are dissipating their energies on innovating problems that aren't important or they're not relevant or customers don't care or it's not going to create a lot of value. So the first thing is to get that clarity around where you're going to innovate and why you're going to innovate. And then from there, you just figure out what are the problems, what are the opportunities, what are the challenges we need to solve. It's not about the idea. It's not about sitting around and uh, you know looking at the clouds and and trying to just come up with some cool ideas. It's, it's not that. It actually is a very purposeful uh, engineering-oriented type of discipline. So it's almost like we complicate it a little bit more, too, by not looking at it as the problem. Is that a right thing to say? Maybe not. But just, you know, sometimes people think that innovation needs to be something big and new and just gigantic in terms of scope, but it's not necessarily about that. Would that be a fair thing to say? Oh, I think that's a totally fair thing to say. I mean, and there's all types of innovation. So you have incremental innovation, you have more radical innovation, you have product innovation, you have business model innovation. So we have, there's a whole wide range of innovation that we're going to focus on uh, inside of an organization. And I think the, the reason why it becomes complicated is not so much the process, but it gets, becomes complicated because we don't have a process. We seem to think that innovation is sort of this unstructured, free-thinking, think-outside-the-box approach. And that is the very thing that tends to destroy innovation in organizations because we don't have an infinite amount of time, money, or resources to spend on innovation. So we need to get people focused. And if we focus people not on ideas, but we focus them on opportunities and problems, then we can really unleash the greatest amount of value with the least amount of energy. That's great. So you said focusing on the problems. So how do you solve your innovation problems? The first part of solving a problem is actually to make sure we're asking the right question. And I think this is the big mistake that most companies make is we get caught up in solutions rather than the problem. We get caught up in answers rather than questions. And I think the key thing is anytime you're making any investment in improving the business, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is the problem we're really solving? And can we frame it a different way such that we could get a potentially a completely different range of answers? Because you could change one word in a problem statement and get a completely different range of possible solutions. So I think the, the, the reason why it becomes complicated is because we don't have structure. Structure, although it seems to go against what most people think, structure creates simplicity. And so when we have the right structure, we're able to become much more efficient in what we do. And I think that's really the, one of the big key misconceptions around innovation. Right. I'm sure. Right. You, you think that you don't want to put or you don't want to try and take away. Right. So you look at structure as the enemy. Like if I do this, it will stifle their innovative efforts. They'll feel bound to this. But it sounds like what you're saying is structure is really that key to helping them solve their problem. When you say structure, what does that look like? Well, so let's take a very simplistic example. If I gave you a blank sheet of paper and say, come up with uh, all the different ways you can improve your business. You will come up with a lot of ideas, but I guarantee you they're going to be the same ideas that everybody else has been thinking about. They're not going to be very creative. They're not going to be very valuable, most likely, and they're probably going to be incremental uh, concepts that people have been thinking about previously. But if I say, how do we improve productivity? Now, that's still a really big, broad question. I would never ask that question. But if you start there, well, now we're getting people focused on a particular mindset. Structure helps people find better solutions. So instead of thinking outside the box, you want to find a better box. And that better box is the right question framed the right way, solved by the right people to unleash the greatest amount of value. Can you give me an example or give our listeners an example of what that right question looks like and maybe what a not so good question looks like? Yeah, and you know, I guess there's not really ever a right or wrong question. It's just questions yield particular results. Okay. And the goal with all of this is to make sure that we're asking questions are going to produce the results that we want. So I'll just give a very simple example. Uh, NASA was doing some work where they wanted to take a washing machine and bring it into space. This is back when they were doing uh, manned space travel and they're getting back into that now because they wanted to be able to wash their clothes. And so if you think about that question, 
how do we bring a washing machine into space where there's zero gravity? It's a very complicated problem. There's pipes and pumps and valves, gravity, and all these other things we have to start worrying about. And they, they were not successful in coming up with useful solutions. So they went back and said, okay, maybe it was the wrong question. And they realized the question was a much simpler question, which is, how do we get clothes clean? Now, one was focused on the process, the solution, which is the washing machine, whereas the other one was focused on the outcome, which is the result, getting clothes clean. Uh, and that led to a whole bunch of different innovations, which were interesting. They're all about cleaning fluids, but you don't need pumps, valves, and pipes. And then they changed one word in the statement, and they went from how do we get clothes clean to how do we keep clothes clean. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about a material science problem. You don't even have cleaning fluids. You're now talking about antimicrobials. And so one word in a problem statement can really fundamentally change the direction you take a problem. But most people get an idea. I want to put a washing machine into space. Great. Okay. How do we do that? And they don't step back and say, what are we really looking to do? Is there a different question? Because if I change the question, I'm going to get different answers. Right. Just changing the question. And too often, I think it is true. People get that idea and right, wrong, or indifferent. They get really, really excited to make it happen, right? Finding that solution. And so they're less likely to maybe take that step back. So for what you're saying is to take that step back, think what is that outcome, the overall solution or idea or result that you are seeking, and how do we accomplish that? So it sounds like you actually simplify it more. You do. Well, when you give people that clarity, and whether, whether it's simpler or not simpler, you give people clarity. And I think inside of organizations, people are so busy that if you say go innovate, they have no clue what you want them to do. And at the same time, they're not going to be very efficient at doing it. So we're going to get a lot of wasted energy. But if we give them a very well-framed problem, now we increase the likelihood of getting something valuable from them in a very efficient manner. And I think that's really the key. And the, the other advantage to focusing on questions rather than solutions is there's a, a psychological challenge associated with people uh, focusing on solutions, which is something called confirmation bias. And basically all that means is once I come up with a solution, an idea, a belief in something, no matter how much convincing someone else tries to do that it might be a bad idea, I'm going to ignore all the evidence that contradicts my belief. I mean, we see this in all areas of life. So it eliminates all these psychological biases that we have. It eliminates uh, the inefficiencies that we have in the way we do work. It really is, I mean, we tend to think about innovation as this big divergent activity where we want volume of ideas. But I always say asking for ideas is a bad idea. Everybody has an opinion, suggestion, or idea. It doesn't mean it's good. So we need to get to a point where people feel that they have clarity around what the organization wants them to focus on. You know, you said you were talking about the ideas. And in one of your books, you talk about an engineering term called the signal to noise ratio. And I found that just fascinating to think about how you're actually harnessing and, or excuse me, how you're actually getting your innovation ideas. Um, could you tell our listeners what the signal to noise ratio is and how that relates to innovation? Sure. So if you think about a typical suggestion box, suggestion boxes are still asking people to solve a problem, but in most cases, it's a very broad problem. So like, how do I improve the business? And what ends up happening is you could get hundreds or thousands of ideas on how to improve the business. From my experience, between one-tenth of a percent and one percent of the ideas that are submitted actually have enough value, enough merit for them to be implemented. So it means that 99% of the time that we spend thinking about the problem, submitting the problem, and evaluating the problem is a waste of time. And the signal-to-noise ratio is basically just the ratio between what you want, which is the signal, and the noise, which is everything that you don't want. So back in the days, uh, I'm, I'm dating myself here, but <laughs> back in the days of cassette tapes, uh, you know, obviously everything now we're doing is digital, but back in the day when there were cassette tapes, there was chromium dioxide tapes. You had ferret oxide tapes, you had regular tapes, and each of them had a different signal to noise ratio, which was the ratio between the sound and the background hiss. And what ends up happening is when we look at innovation, we tend to have very little sound and a lot of background hiss. So it's an extremely inefficient process. And when you flip the whole process on its head and you focus on the questions rather than the ideas, 
you now increase that signal to noise ratio because we're focused on high value uh, opportunities for the organization. Right, so it's not just casting this broad, this broad net and then hoping that you find a solution. It's actually creating a very focused net to be able to grab those solutions and filter through. And I think one of the parts that you also may have addressed in your book, if I'm recalling this correctly, was just the decision fatigue that can result with filtering through all of those ideas and how that can really be something that only probably puts you further away from innovative thinking. Yeah, you have, uh, I mean, decision fatigue, you have idea fatigue. I mean, idea fatigue is really the first part, which is if you ask your employees for their ideas on how to improve the business and you got, like I remember one of my clients that brought me in after everything failed and they said, what happened? They got about 2000 ideas of which they implemented two. And so what happens is you think about that. People are taking time out of their busy day to, to think about an idea, to submit that idea, and then you don't do anything with it. It creates a huge morale issue inside of organizations. Uh, so that whole idea fatigue, okay, I need to think of new ideas, but nobody's doing anything with it. People burn out. Decision, you know, people have to go through and evaluate each of these things. I get 2,000 ideas submitted. I have to go through those 2,000 ideas and see if they're any good. And in most cases, they aren't. So I feel like I'm wasting my time. And that's what we do is we're just a wildly inefficient, uh, or, you know, organizations are wildly inefficient in the way that they tackle innovation. Right. And you brought up a really important um, aspect, which is how how you are applying your innovation efforts and what you are expecting can actually create disengagement from your employees. So if you're asking them to think of the next big thing, look at this that way and solution, 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 and then they give you everything and maybe they're super excited and then they give it to you only to have you say, oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. Who hasn't had those up, those experiences in life where you were so excited, you really thought you came up with the next big thing or a new way of doing things only to find that all of your effort and time was all for naught. Yeah. It's maddening. <laughs> well, and that, that is a reality. Uh, you know, if you look at, I mean, so like 3M is known for their 15% rule, which they do brilliantly, which basically means that 15% of their time they can spend on something other than what they're actually tasked with doing. So if I'm working on an adhesives, I'm working in the adhesives group, maybe I've got an idea for reflectives and adhesives and abrasives and how they can come together. And I can spend 15% of my time trying to create something new and different. And they do a brilliant job at it. But most companies do a terrible job at it. When you say 15% of your time, you can do whatever you want. Most companies end up wasting 15% of their time because people don't know the parameters. Again, th there are parameters, sometimes cultural parameters. So 3M, it's been, they've been doing it for decades. So there's a clarity around what that 15% means. It's not just going off and doing whatever the heck you want. It's still very purposeful and there are constraints around it. Hi everyone, it's Jen. I wanted to pop in and share with you a little bit about what Crestcom does and how we can help you thrive as a leader. Do your managers know how to build an effective team? Can they create an environment where teamwork is encouraged while setting appropriate benchmarks and delivering projects on time? Are they able to align expectations so their team works effectively towards common goals? You hired the right team. Now let us help you develop them. Crestcom offers a robust leadership development program that focuses on results. Each month, participants learn and apply key leadership skills and tools that will unite teams and drive organizational growth. We are serious about accountability. After each class, we help participants apply these leadership skills in group coaching sessions. So are you ready to take leadership development to the next level? Contact us at crestcomleadership.com to learn more about how we can help you. Now back to the podcast. How do you bridge the gap between the problem that might be identified in the boardroom or in the upper level leadership um, meeting to bring it down to your employee that might be able to make that impact? Like, how do you help them understand that problem? Because I think sometimes in organizations, the problem is lost in translation. Well, there is in most organizations a frost layer and the frost layer tends to be in the middle of the organization. And what happens is 
people at the top who see the vision of what's needed, that message comes down and it gets stuck in the middle. People who are closest to the customers and see what real issues are going on on a daily basis with the customers have ideas, but they don't get to filter up to the top. So what's wonderful now is because of technology, we have the ability to go from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top and bypass anybody that's going to stop the process. So if you're an executive and you know this is an important problem, we need to solve this. If we can solve this one problem, remember one client we were working with, uh, they, they started off with an idea platform and it was great. They got a lot of interesting ideas, but then after about nine months, the quality started to diminish. So we worked with them on creating a, what I call challenge-centered innovation, which is an approach where the question is the, 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 the primary focus and we ask people to solve it. And so the executives identified a series of challenges that if we could solve these problems, would create incredible value. And then they opened it up to the tens of thousands of employees that they had to provide solutions. And they got some brilliant solutions. And here's the great thing is once you get a solution you know that you want, you're in a position to start implementing because you've planned in advance. You have the resources, you have the evaluation criteria, you have everything laid out. It is a wildly efficient method for being able to translate that vision that the executives might have and get engagement from everyone involved inside the organization. That's great. Challenge-centered innovation. I know that it was uh, just one of the pieces that I think is really, really valuable in how, as a leader, how you're looking at making an impact. You want to understand what challenge you're trying to solve. To be able to be effective, you don't just want to say, oh, I'm going to do this. I think it could work to boost margin or to grow our sales. It's really what challenge do we want to focus on? Right, absolutely. And what we need to do is when we ask people what problem we want them to solve is we need to go through a thought process to make sure it's not too abstract. So if it's how do I improve productivity? How do I... Uh, increase revenues, how do I improve margins, whatever it might be. When we ask people for their solutions, we're going to get a lot of noise in the system. We're going to get a lot of fluffy answers. Uh, so it's really then deconstructing that, breaking it down if it's too abstract into something that's more manageable. Because when you ask people for solutions, you don't want thousands of solutions. You haven't improved the process if that's what you're getting. You want dozens. And hopefully those dozens can be combined together in ways that will help create a new solution that we hadn't even considered before. Well, and if you think about it, challenge-driven innovation is a great way just to think about how we can be productive as a, as a leader in general, right? Too often we have so many different problems that we're probably trying to solve and we have so much responsibility that it's hard to filter and focus because we're overwhelmed by the amount of data, responsibility, so on and so forth that we're getting. And so those challenges are really a way that we get to save our time because it gives very clear, definitive, this is what we're looking for. This is when we know that we've hit the right solution for it. And now we can take action to what you just said. Exactly, it speeds things up. Because if you think about the traditional idea-driven process, which is the suggestion box, essentially, uh, somebody, submits an idea. Hey, we could go do this. Now we have to go through the process of evaluating it on its own merits. Okay, is it going to create enough value? Okay, well, we think it's a good idea. Now we have to get somebody inside the organization who's going to support it. Okay, well, now we need to go find somebody who has money, a P&L uh, owner or, or product line owner. And we go to them, we say, what do you think of this idea? And in many cases, they say, eh, it doesn't really fit us. But if they say yes, now we have to get the money. Now we have to get the resources. And it's a very long process. Whereas if you start with the problem statement, you start with the opportunity, we have the owners, we have the sponsors, we have the funding, we have the resources, we have the evaluation criteria, and we have the evaluators defined upfront before we even ask anybody to think about solutions. And then once we get solutions submitted, we have that objective criteria to help us be able to determine which ones are the right ones, and we have everything in place to start implementation. It is so much faster, so much more efficient. One of my clients uh, measured their idea-driven innovation program versus the challenge-centered innovation program, and they found on average they were getting a minimum of a tenfold improvement on their ROI because they eliminated the wasted energy and they were only solving important problems. That's fantastic. And I feel like it's also applicable to any area of your life, right? Even when you're asking your friends or what my husband says, what do you want to do for dinner? 
And then he gives a ton of suggestions without saying, what are you craving to eat right now? Where then I could say, I would like some buffalo wings, please. Mm. Versus him giving everything. Um, and, you know, I know that's a more fun example, but really it's we can look at how we can be more efficient in all of our interactions, whether it's in negotiating with your spouse or what you want to dinner to figuring out what type of problems your organization wants to solve. Well, I love that example of, of dinner, because if you think about it, if you say to somebody, where would you like to go to dinner? The first thought is, okay, where are all the places that I can go? And so their mind now, what kind of food am I interested in? And so the brain goes all over the place. And that's basically what happens when you give somebody a blank sheet of paper. Uh, now, the other thing is they may give you an answer that you don't like because you had something you were thinking about. So That's absolutely me with my husband. Yeah, so <laughs> what I find to be useful is I figure out, okay, these are the three or four things I'm really craving. And then I'll just say, which one feels best to you? So I know I'm gonna get something that meets my criteria, but I give them some level of choice, but it's not an infinite choice because it actually makes it easier on the other person too. Because when you say, where do you wanna to go to eat? it drives most people crazy because they're like, I don't know, especially if you're in a town where you don't even know what restaurants there are. Right. Or if you're busy and the last thing you want to do is make another decision or research or think about it, you want it to be an easy choice for you. And it's not that it has to be, you know, in the case of dinner, it should be easier than trying to solve some of your organizational challenges, but you want it to be clear. You want those guardrails and those compass points to be established for you. So it's you know, just an easier way for you to make that transition into solutioning. Yes. I mean, when you, I mean, I, I love the restaurant example, but mainly because it is such a simple way of describing the complexity that actually goes on inside of organizations. Because where do you want to go for dinner is a simple question, but it's a very broad question. And if you think about, but it's, it's still relatively narrow in the scheme of things because you're still talking about just food as opposed to saying, where do you want to go? Well, that's a much broader question. And that's the whole beauty of asking questions is we can make them more specific and we can make them less specific. We can shift them a little bit in a different direction. And I have a number of tools that I use with my clients that help them really say, okay, well, it, I think it's this problem, but no, actually it's this problem or it could be this problem or it could be that problem. That's the beauty of it. And I love a, uh, Einstein actually never said these exact words, but he's been quoted as saying this. Uh, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. And I love that. It, it's a much shorter articulation of something that he said that was much longer. Uh, but what I love about that is most organizations are running around spending 60 minutes solving problems that don't matter. And if you take the time to think about the question, figure out what is it that we really need to achieve, and is there a different problem we can solve, you'll unleash so much more creativity, so much more value, and it'll be so much more efficient, which to me is so important because companies are way too busy. What are some ways that companies can solve their problems? Well, when it comes to solving problems, my favorite uh, assumption is somebody else has already solved your problem. If you are working on a problem, and let's say you're in, uh, you work for a hospital, and one of your big problems is we're trying to get people checked into the emergency room quickly. Okay, well that's, now what most people will do in that situation is they're gonna to talk to other hospitals. They're gonna, but the solution to that one is actually to talk to hotels. Someone has solved the check-in problem already. So if a hospital talks to a hotel, they'll be much more efficient in the way they do things. So I always ask who else has solved a similar problem? And if you can get it to that level of simplicity, when you can start thinking about who else has solved the problem, but in a completely different area of expertise, a different industry. Now, all of a sudden, not only do you get much higher quality solutions, but you get them much faster. And that's also one of the beauties of crowdsourcing when it's done right, is you can find solutions from people in completely different areas of expertise who can find solutions to a problem that you're working on. I wonder, and this is just more with Spark from hearing you, but I wonder how much was sparked from the, not necessarily the invention, but the coming of ride sharing companies like Uber and Lyft. How many people saw that convenience that people were striving for and then built into maybe thinking about Grubhub or Postmates, which are different things of where we get our food and it's fast and it's on demand. And that just made me think like, if they were looking at the Uber who thought about how can we get transportation in a different way, that's 
simple and easy and on demand. And it's thinking, how can we apply the same thing to the fast food chain? Would that be, would I be understanding that correctly or way off? Yeah. No, no, you're, <laughs> you're spot on. Well, and, and Uber figured that out too, because Uber Eats is now crushing it. I mean, I think they, I think I saw a statistic that they sold $10 billion in food last year. Oh I mean, it's like unbelievable. Uh, so, and, and the model, the, the, whether it's the sharing economy, you know, that, okay, that now opens up a whole new set of models. And that's the other thing is there are, there are different models. You have the, the non, you have the access model versus the ownership model. So instead of having to buy MP3s or CDs or DVDs or whatever it might be, well, now you just need access to it. And then, okay, well, what does that do? Now we get Apple Music, we have Netflix, we have all these other different models where people have access to things, but they don't own it. They end their subscription, boom, everything's gone. So it's a different model. And these cool models apply to every single industry. Every, I mean, the, the, the concept of uh, Netflix rental has been applied to boat rentals. There's a boat rental company that's done some really cool things by applying that Netflix mindset. Uh, to a physical product. So it is that cross-pollination where you get some really, really cool solutions. And again, you'll you'll accelerate the process. Great. Oh my gosh, I love that. Do you have anything else that you would want to add in talking about uh, challenge-centered innovation? Before we go on to talk about personality poker, which is one of the your innovation tools and books that organizations can use to help encourage better innovation. Yeah, I would, I would say that with challenge-centered innovation, uh, the key is asking the right question the right way to the right people. That's probably the simplest way to put it. So the right question is to make sure that you're asking something important. Uh, so not all problems are equally important. If you try to be the best at everything, you'll be the best at nothing. So how do we get people to focus on our differentiator? How do we innovate where we differentiate? So those are the right questions. And then asking them the right way is that reframing. If it's too abstract, how do I make it more specific? If it's too specific, how do I make it less so? How do I look at it from different lenses and different angles? Uh, take the time. Anytime you're working on a project, anytime you're making any kind of investment, just put the pause button on and just say, what's the problem we're really solving? And is there a different solution? We jump to solutions so quickly. And the reason for this is because we're not wired for innovation. We're actually a primary wiring is around survival. And so what we do is we, survival, for the most part, the brain believes that what we've done in the past kept us alive. So we're gonna perpetuate the past. Uh, and unfortunately, unlike a lot of commercials that say, you know, past success is no indicator of future success, I would say it's much worse than that. Past success is a pretty good predictor of future failure because expertise is the enemy of innovation. And once you are successful at something, you now, and in your brain, it is against it the survival mode where we're thinking, okay, this worked. I'm going to do it. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to do what I've done before because it was so successful. And then the world changes around you and you're out of business. That to me is one of the key challenges for organizations is to just get out of their own way and recognize that your past experience the deeper you understand your industry, the deeper you understand your customers, the deeper you understand what has worked in the past, probably is a good predictor of what you will not see in the future. I love that. Expertise is the enemy of innovation. And to some of our leaders out there that may feel that pressure to always have all of the answers, to get everything right the first time, it sounds like this is also giving you permission to say, it's not the time to always be the expert. We need to lean into different ideas. We need to hear from different people to understand if there's a new way that we can look at things. So you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to always be disruptive, but just remember that you don't want to hold on to your past because it's going to dictate your future. And that may bring you right to a place where you're going out of business or you're losing a job or X, Y, Z, the adverse consequences that we don't want from building on the past successful thinking. And I love the way you describe that because there is a, a freedom. I mean, I, we hire people because of their knowledge and their expertise, but there's a point where their knowledge and expertise will get in the way. And especially as you move up the ladder, as you become a manager, as you become a director, uh, once you get to these levels, you should not be the expert. You should be the person who pulls out 
the best thinking of everyone else on your team. So what you want to do is actually, instead of giving people answers and dictating what should happen, you want to give people the frameworks and the structures so that they are able to come up with the right questions. You know, there's this mantra we always have in business, which is don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And I actually think that's the wrong mindset. I want bigger, more important, better problems. And as a leader, if we teach our employees, teach our teams to become better at problem identification and problem formulation, they will become better at problem solving. But you don't start with a solution. You start with important problems that are reframed. Right. And helping them see the big picture of where you're trying to go. And I've seen that before in a few different tech in, or tech companies where they have it as it's a sign on their wall that says, don't bring a problem unless you have a solution, right? And it's it actually is the opposite way to look at it. Bring the problem, but make sure you're asking the right questions to identify the problem. And then you can go into the solution. Yeah, and even if you don't have the right question, if you have a question that is important, other people can then help you look at the problem from different angles. And now what you thought was the problem, and I remember one, one client I was working with, uh, they thought they had a call center problem. They, 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 the call center, for some reason, just their response times were going down, the volumes were going up. And so the original problem that statement that they were focused on was, okay, how do, how do we improve the efficiency of the call center to handle the increase in volume? And, you know, when we looked at it, they said, okay, is that really what the problem is? And the issue was they had changed a few lines on the bills that were confusing. And that one change caused this increase in call center volume, which then led them to think they had to be more efficient. When in fact, when they made the bills clearer, the call volumes dropped and they solved the problem. So instead of it being a call center problem, it was actually a billing and invoicing problem. So it's things like that. We need to just make sure, are we solving the right problem? Are we solving the symptom? Are we uh, working on something that, you know, because they could have made the call centers as efficient as possible. They could have hired more people, used new technology, spent millions of dollars, okay. when in fact they could have spent one hour fixing some code on the billing system to just say, this is what's really going on here. Right. So it's, what's your innovation costing you, right? Yeah. You know, that's one piece of it is, what is your lack of an innovation process or lack of identifying the appropriate challenge costing you in terms of um, your time, resources, what is it doing to your organization? How is it impacting morale? That's, you know, I, I just love your whole philosophy around how to identify um, the appropriate challenge and then what we can do to be innovative and that it's something that it's accessible to all of us just by asking the right questions. Yes, absolutely. Hi everyone, it's Jen. I wanted to pop in and share with you a little bit about what Crestcom does and how we can help you thrive as a leader. Hey, Leadership Habit listeners. Are you looking for a proven program to improve your management team's communication skills and create happier and more productive employees? Are your leaders able to take your strategy and break it down effectively for their teams to achieve your vision? Are they able to inspire and motivate their employees to produce real results and meet daily demands? We know that great managers don't happen overnight. Partner with Crestcom to help develop your team and obtain results. Whether you are looking to improve employee engagement and reduce turnover or cultivate a more inclusive culture, our intensive leadership development program provides a diverse set of tools and essential skills for leaders to thrive in today's workforce. Contact us at crestcomleadership.com to learn more about how we can help you. Now back to the podcast. So another book that you have, and it's also a tool that organizations um, can invest in, is personality poker. What is personality poker? I mean, it sounds like a fun game that we're supposed to play. Is that what it is? Well, it is a fun game, but it, has, <laughs> but it does have a point. So uh, when I was... Uh, in the consulting world, I led a very large consulting practice. And I had this belief that there were some people who were innovative and then there was everyone else. And, it was, and I thought it was just a small percentage of the people were innovative. And what I realized over time is I was, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. Everybody's innovative. We just innovate in different ways. We have different ways that we contribute because innovation is not the same as creativity. So if you think about innovation, the way we've been talking about it is it starts with the issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity. Then we have to develop solutions. 
but then we have to implement and we have to engage people because innovation doesn't happen unless we get people involved. And what I realized is those four steps are four different people, four different categories of people. Uh, we have some people who are great at the analytics, the data, the, 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 the numbers, and being able to, to look at, are we solving the right problem? Is it important? Are we focused on what's gonna give us the greatest result? That's one group of people. And personality poker helps you identify those people. Uh, it could be the people who are great at finding solutions. And so the four steps of the innovation process link back to the four suits in a deck of poker cards. Uh, so basically the way it works, quite simply, 52 poker cards, suits, colors, and numbers, but also words. And on the cards, there are words that describe behavioral attributes such as organized, empathetic, creative, analytical. And what we do is we deal out five cards to everybody in the audience and we have people trade. And the goal is to get five cards where the words best describe how you see yourself. And whatever you end up with in the end, so you have five cards with the words really do describe you, the suits, the colors, and the numbers are going to help you determine how you contribute to innovation, how you detract from innovation, uh, who you need to partner with that you probably wouldn't typically be inclined to partner with. We also use it to help understand what's your innovation culture. What do you value as an organization and how is that driving uh, innovation? So it's a simple deck of cards that can have a profound impact on the way an organization thinks and utilizes its people. What are some of the impacts that you've seen from people that have used um, personality poker? So I think there's a, a few things. The, the first one is uh, you want to make sure that everybody's playing to their strong suit, which basically means look, I'm, I'm a diamond in personality poker, which means I like new experiences, I like novelty. Novelty is what I value. So I'm, I'm good at coming up with new ideas because I'm good at connecting dots. Now, if you start giving me spreadsheets, <laughs> I'm gonna be, I'll be, look, could I do it? I could do it, but I would be miserable. So the first thing is we get to see, and we've seen this so many times where uh, people inside of organizations were just in the wrong roles based on the work that they do, that they are naturally inclined to do. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we look at teams. So individuals want to play to their strong suit, but we want to make sure that the teams are playing with a full deck. And basically what that means is if you have, and it, it's natural for teams to hire people who fit the mold. The problem is if you're hiring people who fit the mold, the team's going to grow mold because it's going to become stale. If everybody's thinking the same way, you're not going to get that innovation. So we need to make sure we have all the different styles somehow involved in the innovation process, that full deck. And there, there's so many other ways that we, we use it, dealing out the work to make sure we're dividing and conquering and shuffling the deck to make sure we're getting that creative tension. So there's so many different ways you can use it, uh, but the, the results have just been profound in terms of retention and recruitment, because now people feel as though they're valued for the way they want to be valued. But also when we look at it from a cultural perspective, we can also start now seeing, well, we tend to value the people who produce results, who follow through on plans. And that's a typical club in the, in the deck of cards. These are the people who are the, the implementers. The problem is the diamonds who are the creatives are very different. And if you only use a one size fits all strategy for evaluating people, and if you look at your uh, you know, performance reviews, it will explain why you tend to lose a lot of people of particular styles. So we need to be able to, to evaluate people, praise people the way they want to be praised, not just one uniform way that the organization thinks it should be praised. Right. And I love how you describe it, playing with a full deck. Right. I think that with innovation, sometimes you can assume that innovation is only for the creatives. We don't necessarily assume that it's for your analyticals or for your implementers. And so I love that it's really all about how can we make it where we're all playing, that there's diversity and it's not just dependent on one person, it's all of us together. For sure, and in fact, if you, my definition of innovation is innovation is an end-to-end -end process that starts with an issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity and ends with the creation of value. Uh, if you, the, the spades are the people who are great at defining the problem. So that issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity. We don't think of them as being creative but they're the starting point of the innovation process. And if it's about implementing, creating value, well, those are the clubs. Now the black cards, the spades and the clubs 
We never think, we think of them as being left brain, analytical, pain in the butt, yeah, butt people, have nothing to do with innovation. But the reality is the reason why innovation fails in so many organizations is because, not because they need more ideas, not because they need more creative people, they're using the analytical people. They're using the, the process oriented people the wrong way and they're not tapping into the value that they can provide. Right, so it's looking at it as like, how can we create the environment for you to be able to thrive, to really help us solve this problem and this challenge? No, and it is, I mean, it's fair. I think that given that I'm a creative myself, I think sometimes you do have that generalization that the more analytical is going to stop the innovative efforts. So then you kind of want to do things around them so they can't stop it. Not that you're trying to hide it, but you're more concerned with them not necessarily wanting wanting to do what you're doing because of the, the yeah, but, or like, yeah, well, this is gonna cost, or yeah, we've done that before. And I think instead of avoiding them, it's about bringing them and inviting them to the table and saying, how can we all do this together? For sure, for sure. I mean, we, we need all these different perspectives. And when, look, I, I know for myself as a diamond, as a creative person, the first person I will bring onto my team is my opposite, which is a particular form of club. The person who is really anal retentive. I want, now, they're gonna drive me crazy. I'm going to wanna strangle them. I'm not gonna have fun working with them, but I know I need them because if I don't have them, I'm just gonna be off in la-la land because you know the red cards like to chase bright, shiny objects. I'm, I'm like, hey, this is cool, but tomorrow something's cooler and nothing gets done. So it's having that understanding that we all have blind spots in terms of what we're good at and what we're not good at. And we need to partner with people who are going to compliment us and I mean that compliment with an E, not an I. People are gonna, if, if I'm a creative, I need a planner. If, I, if I'm an analytical person, I might need something who's more empathetic and about the people, not just about the numbers. So how can you establish, or I guess, how can you start to build a team that values diversity and thought? The key word is values. So the biggest mistake that I think most diversity programs make using the term diversity very broadly, is it's about numbers of people rather than appreciation. And one of the things we found is like, even with personality poker, if I have a spade, diamond, club, and heart working together on a team, and we don't do anything to help them appreciate the value they provide, it is the most dysfunctional team you'll ever have. But when you give them the tools to say, okay, I understand how you operate, what your contribution is to the process. I understand that this is where I'm going to be weak and this is where you're gonna be strong. I understand here's how you're gonna drive me crazy and how I'm gonna drive you crazy, but we need each other when you have those conversations. That's the value. So for me, personality poker, yeah, look, it's fun. You get to gift cards to other people. So you get to see how you're perceived by your coworkers. That's cool, but it's the conversation that matters most. Why am I going to be valuable? Why are you going to be valuable? And that to me is the, the real cornerstone and the real value of anything like this. Out of my own personal curiosity, I wonder what personality I would fit. I identify as a creative. I also have the shiny object syndrome where I definitely will see something that's great and I want to follow that. So what does that make me in terms of the personality poker deck? That's a diamond. So uh, diamonds are the bright, shiny object people of the worst kind. Uh, <laughs> they're creative. Uh, I think of diamonds as multifaceted. So Steve Jobs said creativity is just having enough dots to connect. That's what the diamonds are great at because we don't necessarily want to be nailed down into a very narrow box. We like to bounce around and try new things. So we might not have depth, but we have breadth of experiences that we can then connect those dots and come up with solutions that other people might not have considered. Uh, so I would say you're probably primarily a diamond. Uh, I think you probably have some heart in you. Uh, I, I sort of feel that you have a connection to people and that puts you in what we call the influencer category. So diamonds and hearts are the influencers. They have a lot of really cool and interesting ideas and they're able to share those ideas and get people excited about them. Uh, I find a lot of uh, professional speakers fall into that influencer category, whereas program managers tend to be hearts and clubs. They're very good at the process. They're very good at the plans, but they're also good at getting people involved because if you have a great plan, but no people to execute it, you have no results. So those builders, those clubs and hearts are really powerful. So there's so many other different combinations, but it's, I think the, the, the most important thing I wanna leave with personality poker is 
Who you are is less important than who you are not. Who you are is less important than who you are not. And if you have five cards in your hand, 95% of the people in the audience will be missing a suit from their hand. That is the big insight. Because whatever suit you don't have in your hand tells you that's the person you need the most. I always say the person you like the least is the person you need the most. The person who's gonna drive you craziest because they are not who you are is the person you absolutely have to have on your team and you have to value them and nurture them and make sure they feel like they're being valued and you have to figure out how to communicate with them. My gosh, I love this and I'm excited to do that with activity like with our organization and just get to see each other in a different way and through a different lens. So the last question that we like to ask everyone for the Leadership Habit Podcast is around understanding what brought you to your success. And so I want to end this podcast and this great conversation that we've been having with you, Stephen, with the question that is, what is your leadership habit? Uh, being a diamond, I don't have a lot of habits. I, have a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> I, I lack discipline. Uh, but there, there are certain things that I find that really do help me. And I find that environment is important to me. So I live in Orlando. I have uh, annual passes to a number of the theme parks there. And I love to take my iPad and go to Disney or Universal or SeaWorld or wherever and just sit down, feel the environment, sit in a different place, go to a different park and see what's going on and see how Disney creates these experiences. And then I like to write about it and think about it and reflect on how you know others can apply that. I like to uh, have a hot tub. I love to sit in my hot tub when I'm doing writing. So I just wrote another book. And every morning before I would write, I would sit in the hot tub for about 45 minutes and just sort of really just clear my mind so that when I sat in front of the computer, my brain is quiet. And for some reason, the words just flow much more easily than when I'm thinking too hard about things. So it's taking a step back, it sounds like for you and trying to observe instead of just always thinking all the time. Would that be fair? <laughs> I think that I think that's fair. And one of my challenges is I describe myself sometimes as a head on a stick. I think a lot. Getting my brain to to be quiet is very difficult. So anything I can do to quiet it is important. So like when I go to sleep at night, I have to read mindless mysteries because uh -huh. there's something about if I try, if I'm trying in particular I like short stories because if I'm in trying to solve a who done it. I can't be thinking about all of my work things that are gonna be rolling through my head. So I start focusing, and the more I focus on something other than work, and it requires concentration to solve the mystery, I tire myself out and I pass out and fall asleep. So it's, it really is just quieting the brain in any way possible. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your leadership habit with us and also just spending your time and giving us more of an understanding on how we can be successful in innovation. I really enjoyed our conversation today, Stephen, and I'm really happy that we had you on the show. Well, thanks. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Leadership Habit. If you want to learn more about Steve, check out his website, stephenshapiro.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. You can find his book, Best Practices Are Stupid, 40 Ways to Out-Innovate the Competition, as well as his game, Personality Poker, a tool for driving high-performance teamwork and innovation on his website. In addition, be on the lookout for Steve's next book, which will debut in early 2020.